Welcome to Bonehead. We have another great guest and a great interview with Chris Alexander. Chris Alexander was the editor of Fango from 2010 to 2015. For some of you all out there, that's Fangoria Magazine. He's an He is a composer. He's a producer. He's a writer. He's a director. He's an editor. He's worked in the Rue Morgue. What else, guys? He actually is one of those stories that literally started in a mailroom, has taught cinema, has taught uh, history of film, yeah. has done all this other stuff, and you're going to get to see how that story pans out. Also, just as an FYI, there's a great Nick Cage story. And you got to wait to the end, and it is the best <laughs> Nicolas Cage story. We got it for you. You're welcome from Bonehead. Here's Chris Alexander. Chris Alexander, welcome to Bonehead. I'm Joe Lewis. I never introduced my name. <laughs> Tell them this time. I'm, I'm, Chad, I'm Chad Jennings. I'm James <laughs> Thomas. So it's a pleasure to have you on today for numerous reasons. One being, of course, where I first knew about you is that I'm a huge fan of Fango. I have every Fango except for that one issue that was on eBay for a gabillion dollars. What was the deal? Yeah. That, yeah, the that that was the last issue made that actually saw a semblance of print. That was the one made after I quit. Yeah. Which was, they made, do you want the story now or later? Well, we can do it later. I was just, okay. I was just making a comment about it. So to get, to get us started. It's a, great, it's a great story, by the way, about that issue. Well, let's it's go really ahead and do it. Let's story. go ahead and do it. If you want to start well, with no, fa- just, no, that, that last issue. So what happened was the publisher, um, you know, he's he's uh, not not terribly trustworthy human being. Let's put it that way. In publishing, <laughs> do yeah. the movie people yeah. know? Because no, movie they, people are even more trustworthy. Yeah. <laughs> or so financiers. this guy was like, you know, whatever you imagine uh, that kind of nefarious publisher to be, times like just whatever, just not a good dude. And <laughs> one of the stunts that he would pull or tried to pull with this issue was didn't have the money to pay the printer. Right. And so he created this issue and it was uh, Mike Gingold's, uh, I think only issue as editor, editor in chief, uh, sadly. And he got the printer to print, I think like eight copies of it so that he could send some to the advertisers and fool them into thinking that the magazine had printed and thus getting them to pay in advance for their, their advertising so he could pay the printer to print, print the issue. Let's just say his plot did not work. Right. The magazine only printed eight issues. So I know where that one issue is. A fan bought it. Bill Mahali, the designer, sold it and they bought it. The other ones, I don't know where they are. But if you can ever find one, it literally is probably the most collectible, uh, not just Fangoria issue, but Monster Magazine period in history, I think. And that probably really. that probably goes with famous monsters of film land and all of them, don't you think? A- everyone, because it ain't. Like for a mainstream ma- a major magazine to only print eight issues is pretty much unheard of yeah yeah well you were there from 2010 to 2015 correct true that yeah true that true that how did you do you mind if i ask you to start we'll go we'll go through fango and then we'll go to some movies and then we'll start talking about your because i want to talk about pinballs your music and a bunch of other things right because sure, yeah. i don't want to just bog you down with that but how did you get involved with fangoria I was working for a Canadian magazine called Room Work. Yeah, uh, we were, were fans of Room Work. Oh, I had a column called The Schizoid Cinephile because they were in Toronto. And there was nothing like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, Fangoria was my Bible. I just, you know, I'd hide it in other magazines so I could, you know, it was the first time. I, I remember opening Me it too. up and seeing the Scream Greats uh, Gatefold 
of Nicholas Campbell in Cronenberg's uh, The Dead Zone. He had scissors in his mouth. He got, ah. Yeah. Oh my God, what am I looking at? I couldn't get that image out of my mind. And, you know, that magazine, like all of us, taught us the wizard behind the curtain, special effects, you know, all these mythical people um, made them more tangible and human. Absolutely. And uh, so there was nothing like that in Canada, though. And suddenly Rue Morgue popped out of nowhere. And with, within three issues, I kind of stalked them and I ended up writing for them and being a big part of that. And so because of that, uh, George Romero's um, Diary of the Dead was shooting up here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rumorg didn't do any set visits, and I wanted to get on set because I wanted to meet Romero, and I wanted to, you know, see a Romero dead movie being filmed in my backyard, obviously. And uh, so I just went to Fango, simple as that, and I said, "Here, here's who I am, and here's what I want to do. And, and they hired me on the spot, and I did a bunch of uh, TV things for them for the Diary of the Dead and, and did all kinds of, I think, three issues worth of content. Um, so it just kind of went on from there, and then I became a regular on Fangoria Radio. Yeah. And... Uh, then one day I had, I had an, a car accident and I flipped my car and my arm almost got cut off because Ooh. my arm was hanging out the side of the car and it went across the, the ground and gloved my entire arm and it got infected. And anyways, it was a nightmare. I was on so many drugs and I was in a record store. And he's and still on them, right? You're still on them, correct? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I've had a little bit to drink. But it's a joke. I don't generally do drugs. He, right, have, right, right, right. Just the cocaine. Get so we weird if I did them. So weird. <laughs> uh, so I was in this record store and I, I'm like buying whatever I was doing. And I had my arm all wrapped up and it was like, I couldn't even shower for a year. Like it was just crazy. And uh, I got this call and it was um, from the managing editor, I guess, of, uh, of Fango who liked my work. I had a blog with Fango at the time and and he just said, hey, you know, it's getting kind of tired over here and we like what you do. And uh, what, what else do you do if you're living? And I said, well, I write, I teach. I, you want to run the magazine? I said, yes, I do. It was literally <laughs> like that. And within a couple of weeks, that was my gig. So uh, then I ran that uh, magazine for six years, five years, six years, something like that. Yeah. You took over right after Tony Tampone, correct? Yeah. So they kind of took Tony out because he'd been there for 25 years, uh, which is crazy. Yeah. And uh, they kind of put him somewhere else in the company to work on the VOD or something like that. And, uh, yeah, I took over. And I could have moved to New York, but I didn't because, like you, I had um, I had two children at the time, and they were very little, yeah, uh, four, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And I didn't want to uproot them. And I'm Canadian again, so it would have been a whole fucking thing to do. Yeah. And so I stayed in my house just outside of Toronto, and I ran that whole beat out of my house, like changing diapers while I was interviewing major celebrities. And it was just, you know, it's one of those things that I can't, I can't even, I can't even when I flash back on it, it feels like I dreamt it, but it was real. It really did happen. And uh, it was wild. It was a I, wild time. I, can't I don't regret any of it at all. I mean, I, I talked bad about the publisher a little bit. But thank God for him because he took a chance on me. So it changed my life for the better. I, yeah, I get that. I just, I, I, that's so ballsy and I can't believe they let you do it. You know, I can't well, believe they let you do it from your house. Well, I think the thing is I, I lucked out because we're a global village. Look at us. You're in Kentucky. Yeah, no. I'm here outside of Toronto. You can run, you know, the world as long as you got, uh, from Mars if you got Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it just, it was one of those things. It was the right time. And uh, Fango, you know, the, it's all about the illusion, right? So right. it looks like this gigantic juggernaut of a company. Really, it was only run by like, you know, three or four people. It was a very small mom and pop operation, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's just, just a weird little thing. Well, and, and Fangoria is really interesting to me because it kind of spun off of Starlog, which was yeah. a science fiction and, and Fangoria Way outlasted. Way Starlog. outlasted Starlog. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, not. I don't know if we can. I don't know. That's interesting because Starlog, I think, had a couple years on Fango, as, as you yeah, said. Yeah, it did yeah. before, but not. I mean, Starlog. I think. I think they finally pulled the plug on Starlog just before I came on. I think it was 2010 or at the same time. Um, so yeah, I guess it. I don't know how long. I don't know when Starlog started, but if it outlasted, it was only by a couple of years, if you do the math. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think the legacy, obviously, of Fangoria outweighs Starlog. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I, I was. You know, because science fiction was was acceptable uh, when Starlog reared its head, but horror was still the ugly stepchild of, of uh, fantasy films, you know? And Fangoria did a hell of a lot to legitimize the genre, I think. I agree. That's, that's one of the uh, conversations we've had with a couple different people, and I, it goes back to that Bruce Campbell, I think, has a quote. Um, you about mentioned it, it last yeah, time. It Bruce, that... Bruce Campbell has a quote that sticks to me t to this day about how he said, you know, Horror has become more mainstream now, but back in the 80s and 90s, it, or, you might early have, 80s. or early 80s, you might as well have been working in porn if you were acting in horror movies. Yeah, I, I, well, it's, there was that old adage about porn and horror. It's just about what spurts where and when. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's kind of true because it's, it's the build-up, foreplay, foreplay, yeah. foreplay, uh, some kind of penetration of some sort, and a money shot. A money shot. You took the of, words right out of my mouth. It's kind of the rhythm of, of a lot of uh, low-end horror movies. Um yeah, I mean, it, it was always, to me, it was, obviously, I was very little. I didn't know, I couldn't get the sexual component of, of horror, but yeah, I, mean, I got the I got the rebellion aspect of it. So horror was my punk rock, and uh, all those effects guys, like Rob Bettine and, and Rick Baker, they were my rock stars. And really, they looked like rock stars back then, with the long hair, Rob and they were Bottin, real outlaws. Really? Yeah. Well, the last time I saw him, I don't know that I see him in a lot of stuff anymore, literally looks like a rock star. He looked... <laughs> Rob Bottin, Rob Bottin, yes, yes, absolutely, with the hair yeah, he, and the he, beard. He's kind of the last one because he's, you know, Rob Bottin, he doesn't come out of his hidey hole for for, for many people anymore. So he, he really is kind of like the, the, the last outlaw, the, those effects, splat pack guys. Absolutely. Well, how did you – now, I know how I got into it, and I'm probably uh, – I'm a bigger fan because – what, the experience you had with Fangoria is basically the same as me. I grew up in rural eastern Kentucky in the hills, if you're familiar with any of the Appalachian Mountains. And I was in the movies from a very early age, and I just latched on to Sam Raimi, like a lot of people my age. I'm 39, you know, just latched on to him, The Evil Dead. And I remember picking up a Fango and, and looking through it and seeing his name, and I was... Till that I own every issue, you know what I mean. Till as yeah. I as I went back and worked and went back and got more money and was able to buy this one on eBay, on this one on eBay. So that's how is yours similar? Is that how you fell in love with horror as well? Well, I, I had um, a fan, a lot of uh, family members who were really into fantasy. My dad was into science fiction more than horror, but science fiction back before Star Wars. I mean, was you know simpatico with horror? The Omega Man, so, you know, Soylent right. Green. Planet of the Apes, uh, the Twilight Zone was my life as a kid. My dad would and I would stay up late and watch Twilight Zone reruns. It's still, still my favorite thing of all time is, is Twilight Zone. Rod Serling is my hero. Um, so all those things were my point of entry. And my uncle, who's uh, mentally handicapped, but not drastically, uh, he was in a savant kind of way, could do these uh, incredible puzzles and monster, you know, the old monster model kits. Yeah. So he had his entire room decorated with all those amazing monster kits including like the big frankie which was the giant uh frankenstein and and so i was surrounded by comic his comic book collection Viewmasters, um all this crazy wild stuff like it felt like it was beamed in from another dimension and it was all i was always allowed to explore it 
So it was always there. And obviously I loved dressing up on Halloween. My aunt would dress me up. I loved Kiss. I discovered Kiss when I was three years old. I thought Gene Simmons was a monster. I used to have nightmares about Gene Simmons coming to my <laughs> ceiling vent like a ghost. And my mom was, it's okay. Kiss isn't coming for you. You're good. You're good. I'm like, oh my. And then I remember getting an album out of the library and hearing it. And I was really bummed out because it was just like shitty rock and roll. But I thought it was be growling and like, you know, like really dark, deranged stuff. But anyways, uh, yeah, so that was always there. But I think the, as far as cinema goes, I remember I had a comic book. And it was an issue of Batman where he was fighting a dude named Blockbuster. Oh, yeah. In yeah, I mean, there was like a wintry, snowy, I remember the cover. And flipping it over, there was a, an advertisement for um, Philip Kaufman's remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Absolutely. So this was 1978, would have been, I would have been four. Right. And uh, I couldn't really read it. I don't remember being able to read it. But the, if you know the original one sheet, it had the shadows of the four running with their um, their shadows, like the silhouettes of yep. them, but their shadows were almost like roots in the ground and it was a sepia tone kind of look. Uh -huh. And you know, it was really, really weird and abstract and scary as fuck. And I remember a year later when I was five, my parents went out to go see Apocalypse Now in the theater and left me with a babysitter. And Invasion of the Body Snatchers was having its Canadian television premiere on City TV. And uh, I, want, I knew it was because I saw the commercials and I, uh, explicit instructions to the sitter, do not let him watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> Even though it was PG, it was still, I was not allowed to see it. And of course she fell asleep. I had one of those converters, you know, uh, back in the day where you press the buttons and <laughs> So I just pressed all the buttons and I found City TV just in time to see Donald Sutherland smashing his own double in the face with a hoe. And I'll, you know, gory, for a PG movie, that's a really gory movie. Yeah, yes. well, it is. It opens up and the pus comes out and, the, and there's that sound of the fetal monitor. <laughs> I was like, oh, what am I looking at? I, I scrambled to turn it off. But it was too late. I was scarred. <laughs> I was damaged. I had night terrors for months, I think, after that. But because of um, the impact it had on me, I was fascinated. I was truly fascinated. Then I went to the House of Frankenstein in Clifton Hill in Canada, side of Niagara Falls, and uh, saw all those wax monsters. And, and that just opened up an, an obsession that, that's never ebbed to this day. I mean, I just love weird shit. I love monsters. I love uh, anything arcane, dangerous, strange. Um, it's just since that point. So I was four or five years old when it really sunk its claws in me. Yeah, you and sure. I have very similar background stories about horror movies. <laughs> I, you know, I think <laughs> you mentioned a babysitter. I think babysitters have created an entire niche of people who love horror. Yeah, babysitter, like like shitty babysitters. Yeah, I was shitty babysitters. My, yeah, my yeah. wife was introduced. She's younger than I am, but she was introduced to, to Nightmare on Elm Street intentionally by her babysitter. Didn't wanna, <laughs> basically didn't want to have to deal with her and said, oh, I'm just going to watch this movie. And of course, my wife at that point was four or five and just marathon these movies and thought, oh, she'll get scared and go away, go to her room and hide and I'll be able to do what I want to do. And it didn't work. She sat there and scared the living daylights out of her. But she just sat there yep. the entire time. Why is he doing that? Because he's evil. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's my stories because I have three little kids, three little boys, and now they're 10, uh, 8, and 6. And, you know, this has been their world. It's just what dad does. They've been on every film set. You know, George Romero moved to Toronto, yep. and he used to let us stay in his apartment. You know, so there was just. Are you serious? Always... Yeah. My claim to fame is moderating a panel and getting being that, uh, just that moderately friendly and getting a story out of him about he and Scorsese almost doing. 
a, um, a, a, a basically a ghost film for Disney in the early 80s. Have you ever heard this story before? No, I haven't. No. Okay, well, I will send you the link later tonight to that, and you got to check it out. I got that. I did get that out of him. So let's. You got to hang out with him in his apartment. Well, no, George. George is a really good friend of mine. It was, you know, in Toronto, we're lucky we have what we had because we just lost George. But right, uh, we had George moved up here after Land of the Dead. He left his wife and and found a, a lovely second wife, Suzanne. <laughs> I did and, not know uh, that. So we have we had George. We have Guillermo del Toro lives here. Yeah, yeah. We have uh, David Cronenberg, born and raised, and really shot most of his movies here. I think the only movie he ever shot outside of um, two movies he shot really outside of Canada. One was Spider in England, and the other one was just scenes of Maps to the Stars in L.A. Otherwise, he's just never left Toronto. So all those guys are, are around me, and because when you're, you know, you're running Fangoria, it's like a small little world, and so you just you get to know them and you spend some time with them. So I was really, really lucky to, to actually have a legitimate friendship with George. And, and to me, like, there's Rod Serling, and then there's George Romero. Yeah. Those two guys were my titans. Uh, Dawn of the Dead is my favorite film of all time of any genre, you know. So it was a real um, honor to be able to sh share space with them and 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 hear many of these stories. And you know, you talk about the Scorsese story. I mean, I don't know that one, but with George, there were so many movies he could have made I that were just about to happen. And it's just like the mind reels the stuff he should have made. And what happens? These guys with dough look at him and they kept saying, "Hey." It's not a zombie movie, so we're not going to do it. So we're going to give you a little bit of money if you make another dead movie, another dead movie, another dead movie. And that's unfortunately, especially in the last like 15 years of his life, it's all he could do. He'd have to make a zombie movie in order to work, you know, Yeah. which is fine. But, you know, there was so much more to the guy. There and was. I would have loved to seen um, him explore, uh, you know, the many sides of because he was a movie buff. Not he wasn't a horror movie buff. No, he just he... loved movies. You know, you could talk movies with this guy until like two a.m. drinking scotch. Uh, man, the guy just—he was an encyclopedia. So it would have been great to see him kind of step his foot outside the genre a little bit. And that's what—that's like with me. Besides, Dawn of the Dead is my favorite Romero film, but a close second is Bruiser for me. That—that's my—that's my second. Wow. Yeah, I really love Bruiser. I can watch it over and over again. Bruiser is an, an amazing movie. I, that's what brought him to Toronto in the first yeah. place, actually. I, I agree. There, but to me, the George never made a bad movie. No. I, I think it's funny as people, like, he'll make a movie. You know, he makes Night of the Living Dead, then he chases that with There's Always Vanilla. Right. And then he makes Dawn of the Dead, and he chases that with Night Riders. So he was always defying uh, expectations of what he would do next. And I think that caused him some critical disdain and some fan disdain because the fans kept wanting a certain thing out of him, and he refused to buckle, even when he kept making zombie movies, they were never the same zombie movie twice, right? I, I mean, his last Not movie, even Survival of the Dead, was a Western, for Christ's sake, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know? So he just, what a, what a great dude. Yeah, I, did, I didn't watch Knight Riders till this year, and oh my God, that movie is fantastic. <laughs> awesome, I love Knight Riders. I don't know why I never watched it. <laughs> but well, because it's a, it's, it was kind of obscure, like it was never really, uh, I mean, it was always available, but it was kind of on the peripheral, and it kind of looked, I remember as a kid seeing it thinking it looked goddamn goofy. Yeah. I was like, I don't know about this. Some night dude on a motorcycle looked cheap. But it you know, is but a goofy. It's great. But it is a goofy idea, but it's a marvelous film. Beautiful. I, it's a beautiful movie, it. and it's yeah. a beautiful story. And there's, and we were talking about this when because we, we did a whole tribute episode. Because, like yeah. I said, I, when I met him, I always, when I moderated these conventions, I go up and I go, hey, is there anything you don't want to talk about? Is there anything you want to talk about? And he was... 
so kind, and we've met him several times, but this one time he said, I, you know, I kind of like to talk about the ones that got away. And that was really the whole panel. And I said, well, I won't ask you any, I'm not going to ask you a zombie question. He goes, I, I was like, no, I'm not. Don't worry. The audience will take care of that for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. great. I, you have this video? You have like. Oh, yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'd love to see it, man. I yeah, will send you the link. It's probably the best one I ever did. I'm sorry. We're getting, we're talking about me, and I don't mean to do that, but we got off on Romero. Whatever. Uh, I forgot what I was going with that. <laughs> well, hey, listen, listen. Since I got a, since I'm all pretentious by a fireplace with a wine glass, I'm gonna raise a, uh, this glass to George. Yeah, to George. Me. We don't have anything here. One of the one of the architects of the genre, and uh, there'll never be another dude like him. So no, there you and, go. And a very once again sweet, sweet man. Like, oh hell yes! Even yeah. if he wasn't the guy who made Dawn of the Dead, I think I would have still loved him. You know, he's just a great. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to tar start talking about your early days? Do you want to talk a little bit? I didn't know you did radio until I was doing some research. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, my early days, I don't, I don't know. I went to film school and then I got really pissed off that um, I had a very specific idea of what art was in my mind. And to me, I've always been very, uh, you know, I just, yeah, I just curl my lip. At, and, you know, there's that old Groucho Marx line uh, that Woody Allen stole and I think a lot of people stole, but. Uh, I don't want to be part of any club that will have me as a member. I yeah. love that so, line. James and I use it all the time, especially James. He will say, we, Well, it's it's true. I, I've always hated scenes. I've always hated clicks. And I've ever, I've never, when it comes to art, I feel like that, you know, it's it's your purest time. It's your only time to have pure expression. And uh, I've always kind of dissed to, to what was going on around me. So I didn't quite fit in at film school. And uh, I was really, um, you know, uh, angry about trying to put parameters around something that shouldn't have parameters. Right. Uh, so I, I left that. Then I went to art school and I dropped out of that for the same reasons. And uh, I couldn't afford to make movies because it was very expensive at the time. This is pre-video. It was 16 mil yeah. for me. And it was like 30 bucks at the time to buy a two-minute roll of film and 30 bucks to develop it. And you're not going to use that whole two minutes. And there was no sound. And, you know, it was a whole thing. Yeah, no, no. So, uh, yeah, you remember that. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the video era just kind of came out of nowhere and just wiped that out. But um, it wasn't like that when I was in school. Uh, so I ended up uh, using my love of music and creating a live action movie, uh, music performance art band uh, where I would incorporate films I'd made into performance and, and live industrial electronic music. And, and I toured that around. And, and uh, I don't know, man. I just did that for a while. And then I remember having a, a, a day job, which was actually a night job. I was working as a concierge at a condo. And Richard Benjamin, you know, the actor Richard Benjamin, oh, also yeah. uh -huh. who yeah. also directed he Westworld, right? Yeah, he's in Westworld, and he also directed one of our favorite movies, uh, My Favorite Year. He directed My Favorite Year with Peter O'Toole, absolutely. absolutely. You know, a couple duds in the mix, like, uh, you know, uh, well, no, Mermaids is pretty good. Um, but he was also in Saturday the 14th, which was a Roger Corman, Jim yeah. Corman movie. Anyways, great dude. He was making a miniseries at that condo, and he would um, come home every night after shooting this miniseries. And he'd just sit with me and we just talk movies all night. And it was just fucking amazing. And so while this was going on, The Exorcist had just been re-released, the version you'd never seen. Uh -huh. And I, I knew Warner Brothers had an office in Toronto. So I just, it was like three in the morning. I was just like, what am I doing? I can't just keep doing this stupid band. I, 
I, I got to get out there. I ended up calling Warner Brothers up at three in the morning and typing in every last name I could find, like Jones and Smith, and couldn't find that. But The Exorcist was in front of me, and I typed in Blair after Linda Blair. <laughs> got the president uh, of Warner Brothers on the phone, and, uh, or his voicemail. <laughs> Left this, like, bullshit voicemail saying I'd do anything to work for the company, that I know everything about every movie ever made, blah, blah, blah. And the next day, uh, I was called by Human Resources. I guess he forwarded me to Human Resources. I went in for an interview, and a week later, I was working in the mailroom. Uh, I do a Mina Elvis impersonation, so after delivering the mail for like a couple months, uh, the publicity department hired me to be an Elvis impersonator and go around in, in a limo and uh, deliver peanut butter and banana sandwiches to radio stations <laughs> and do an Elvis thing on the air to promote 3,000 miles to Graceland. And uh, that went off crazy, so like two weeks later they hired me as a, a junior publicist at Warner Brothers. And so there I was just uh, marketing all these fucking movies, and they were terrible movies at that year. It was like all these Freddie Prince Jr. movies, and oh, oh my God, they were just like the worst pack of shit. So uh, every time a critic would come in and I'd have to screen these movies privately in the screening rooms, I'd take them aside and I'd just trash the movie and then we'd talk about real cinema. And uh, I, I had a, like a, my own Rolodex of all these uh, critics and, and magazine publishers right. and editors, and, and I basically just wormed my way in through the back door while I was a publicist during the day. I started writing at night and pitching myself to all these different editors. And I always had the, the jump on everybody because I could see a lot of these movies first because I, you know, sometimes months and months in advance because I was working for the company. It was totally unethical. That's okay. <laughs> oh, that's okay. It sounds great. Yeah, it was okay. And then, then Rue Morg came along and uh, the Toronto Star, I was doing some stuff for them. And there's just so many different ways I could go off in this, but my early days, it was like a fireworks show going off uh, all the time all these different opportunities. And I was in the school I, I dropped out of, Sheridan College. I wanted to become a teacher, so I just called them up and said I wanted to teach horror film history, and I created a syllabus, and they hired me for two years to teach a, a class called Fear on Film. So I taught horror film history and theory, and, and uh, I was doing all you, shit. I, like, it was just crazy, crazy, crazy. And then, little, 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 fast forward it all. I, I also had a radio show on AM640 for about six years where I was their film critic. And uh, I was on MTV all the time. Then I fought Uva Ball, and all this shit happened. And then I became the editor of Fangoria, and on we go. Before we get to Uva, Uva Ball, uh, yeah. so all three of us work in higher education. James and I both work at the University of Kentucky. James is actually, yeah, James is actually a PhD, whereas I'm not. But how in the hell did you get? We know the process. So you didn't yeah. you didn't have your degree finished, and they let you. No, I, this I don't have a degree in anything except for you know nothing. I have a degree in zero. I'm an uneducated rube. And, well, uh, I, that's not what I'm saying. I just know the process of how that happened. I, know, I don't know how it happened. It, be, it was a continuing education thing. Was my entry point into it, <laughs> and I just um, I just it was just one of those things at the time. I guess maybe in in at that school, right? I hadn't hammered down as hard as they did later on because I actually spoke to them recently about teaching something and, and the, everything's changed now it's you need a bachelor's degree you know whatever the whole deal yeah just fine but but it was just luck of the draw that the planets were aligned in a certain way oh you were you know? so lucky. and then I, then I went from there to, to become like the dean of film history at the toronto film college so right i, I don't uh, i don't know how that happened <laughs> for forrest gump-esque luck i don't know well it's fantastic though yeah. well but i think that's really interesting that you focused on film history because I think I, I, my focus is education history, and it's amazing that when you start to talk about history, people either go, that's really interesting, or they go, okay. <laughs> so I think well, that... Film history is different. Well, I mean, I, w I was a very unorthodox teacher. 
And uh, I was kind of, I would always say, yeah, I'm going to teach you film history, but it's not just film history. It's my version of film history. And I'm not an academic. So you're going to get a certain kind of uh, presentation that maybe you're not used to. And, and it's a little bit, uh, you know, off the cuff <laughs> and a little more abstract. And I, I'm going to show you some stuff that, you know, a lot of, a lot of teachers wouldn't show you. And, and, uh, and the, the, the students freaking loved it. I mean, we just, we did some amazing, I showed some crazy films had some crazy guests in, and, but I still taught them the ABCs of how cinema started and right. uh, the, the art and science of it. It was still there, but my entry points into certain genres or certain movements were just a little bit different. You know, I, I don't know many, many film teachers that would jump from the, you know, the Italian uh, neorealism to Mario Bava, but I would always do, <laughs> do things like that. Then I'd, I'd have guys like Stephen Forsyth, who was in Bava's Hatchet for the Honeymoon and also lives in Toronto, come into the class and, and start talking about actually working with all these guys uh, which was an amazing thing for the kids because where else are you going to get that? You know, oh, yeah. nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh. No, it was great. It was great. I love teaching, but I, I consider like everything uh, in a form of, of teaching. It's all it is is communicating what you love, what you're passionate about in some sort of comprehensive way. I don't think it matters what medium you're using, right? Right. right. So do you want to do you want to start talking about boxing with you have a bowl? <laughs> because I it's just fascinating, and and I will. I will start this before you will say Matthew Lillard told us that if we ever met him, he was a very, he's an extremely charming man. Well, Matthew Lillard was in like in the name of the King or something. Right, yes. right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, he is. Or blood he's rain, also crazy as shit. Yeah. He's a nut. He's, a, he's, he's, he's just as mad, mad hatter as you would imagine him to be, but not in a bad way. He's just, he's just a serious, he's just dedicated to eccentricity. That's all I can say, you know? Um, how did that happen? It's funny. I always forget it happened. And last night I was talking to my girlfriend and I just kind of, we're talking about boxing, you know, cause I'm not a sporty lad. And I just said, Oh yeah, I boxed. She said, no, you didn't. I said, I did check it out. I just pulled up a YouTube clip and I said, that's me. She said, what? I'm like, yeah, it's true. Right. I forgot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, I was on Rumorg radio and we'd always trash Uva Bulls movies for sport. Like everybody did. Everybody did. Yes. Well, they, you know, you, everything from making fun of his name to, I think he'd only made like two or three movies at that point. He made House of the Dead, which was a hell of a, hell of an entry point into shit cinema. I mean, there's yeah. no doubt. And I then he chased that. <laughs> Did he chase that with Alone in the Dark? I think Alone I in the Dark. Dark, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that you mention that because I always say House of the Dead's terrible, but I can sit through House of the Dead. I can't. I cannot. I don't know that you can make me sit through Alone in the Dark. Again. No, it's 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 tough unless you're That's a real Tara serious Reed, right? Tara Tara Reed fan. Yeah, yeah, no. that mixed with Tara Reed's promotional tour for the movie. Prices. Oh my god, <laughs> I don't think I could sit through Alone yeah. in the Dark. But yeah, House of the Dead at least has that DMX song. You know, in the trailer. Oh, die. oh well, you bear witness. Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But I don't know. So we're trashing him, and then he put up that thing that put up or shut up thing he was putting a blanket out to all his critics and he was trying to fight michael bay first i remember that <laughs> and you know michael bay just like obviously like most sane people ignored him and uh i just went for it immediately and i, I pushed myself i said i'll do it i'll fight this fucker and here's all the th bad things i've said about him and I, i'm sure he was you know he was a trained boxer he was a legitimate boxer and i'm sure he was looking for 90 pound weaklings no. so that he could Hill. I mean, there's no doubt about it because a couple other guys did show up for the party and he wouldn't fight them because they were just they had too much training. However, I, I knew enough about the guy's character to know that he wasn't 
fooling around, right? I mean, he was genuinely serious. He was hurt. He was angry. Sure, this was a promotional stunt, but he wasn't going to pull, literally pull any punches. I knew it. None of the other guys did. So I actually trained with the guy who trained the uh, boxers for Cinderella Man for about two uh-huh. or three weeks. <laughs> and I, I learned how to sort of box. And uh, so when we flew out to Vancouver, there was like thousands of people at this arena. Maybe I'm stretching it. I'm fudging the facts. Maybe like 500. And, <laughs> hey, uh, 500, uh, 500. It felt like thousands, you know? Right. And, and so it starts getting real. And I remember the guy from um, somethingawful.com. I forget. Richard Kayanka. He comes out like in this goofy-ass costume. And he, he says, like, so when is someone going to teach me how to box? And everyone's looking. I'm like, what, what? Just before he gets ushered out there. And Bull just like killed him. He was tears in his eyes. Like, you know, I think it was over in like five seconds. Uh-huh. The, the second guy was from Ain't It Cool News, who now runs another website. And I don't Was it know. Moriarty? Who was it? Was it, it? Was it Moriarty? Because oh. I, I was, I've been a big Ain't It Cool fan since I think 95, 96. Oh, it was like Jeff something. Yeah. What was his handle, though? I, I don't remember his real uh, name. Yeah. What, what did you say? What was his name? Moriarty. I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. That's who it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Pretty sure. I think anyway, so, but I'm not for sure. He got the shit kicked out of him so much, he ended up vomiting everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, I came out, I at least lasted two rounds. I, uh, I, my corner man, instead of uh, water, had fake blood in a, in a jug. <laughs> and I dumped the fake blood in my mouth. And I came out and I let him, I let him give me a haymaker. And then I spit the blood all over him. <laughs> and he backed off. He's like, whoa, right? You can see this on the little video. And then the, uh, the ref comes up to me and goes, you want to throw the fight, son? You know, I was like, I felt like it was in a great old noir or something. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, it's okay. It's fake. So he leans into Bull and he says, that's fake blood. And then Bull went crazy and just started laying into me like nobody. And boxing is all cardio. And I, I could have gone longer, but I couldn't fucking breathe. Right. And so he hit me for the last time and I went down and I was like, I could get up again. But I think I've like proven I've come here to do what I came to do. <laughs> yeah. We're good. You know, and then anyway, so the next day, all the other guys went home bitter and angry and Bola picked me up from the hotel and took me to his beach house. And we spent the morning at his beach house walking his giant dogs and talking about film history. And there's a guy, you can say what you want about his movies, uh, but he knows everything there is to know about cinema. He knows everything. Uh, he can give you dates, names, running times. He can discuss any movie from any era, from any country at length. He's a very educated, very smart, very passionate guy who's just, he just happens to be a little bit fucking crazy. <laughs> is, it, is it because he's crazy? Is it, be, or the, is it he just has shitty taste? Why do you think the movie sucks so bad? I just, I, I think he's a great producer. I don't think he's a very good director. Yeah. I think that's the bottom line. I don't, I think you have to have a sense of music right. in order to be. I, I really do. I think everything's music. I think writing is music. I yeah. think directing, e- e- editing. Rhythm. It's, it's a sense of rhythm and timing and knowing when to pull <laughs> back and, you know, reveal. And and uh, I don't think Bull has that at all. So when you watch his movies, they sound like sour notes. Even his good ones are still a little bit tone deaf. But he's great at putting a package together and a, and a product together. And I think he's he should have just just always focused on being a producer, but he wanted to be Orson Welles. I mean, that's, that's it. He wanted to be, he wanted to be Orson Welles, but could he have been the German Corman? Uh, no, he wouldn't have been the German Corman because Corman, oh, Corman was a good director. Well, that's true. Okay. Yeah. yeah Corman gotta... was a great fucking director yeah. who, who really understood, uh, he, he, Corman, when Corman was on, he fired on every cylinder. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't, 
he he also had a sense of humor about himself in the sense that he he just he didn't take himself too seriously. Right. He was a guy making product, and and I know Roger. And uh, he's still like that. He's still, he's 92 and he's, he's still running around doing shit. It's, he's amazing. Uh, but he never t- took himself and still doesn't take himself very seriously. Uh, whereas Bull uh, takes himself deadly seriously. No. <laughs> the difference, yeah. So that's not a good combination. <laughs> no, so, so, so that's why, you know, he gets hurt and he gets angry. And you've seen all those tirades on YouTube where he goes off like, ah. And uh, it's, we're laughing at him, but he's, it's from the heart. You know, he's, he's very sincere, but he, he doesn't, he genuinely doesn't understand why people hate his movies. That's why he doesn't do it anymore. He's done. He's out. He yeah. just runs his restaurant Bauhaus out in Vancouver. That's what he, that's what he does. And he, I mean, I'm sure he'll come back at some point, somewhere, sometime, but uh, for now he's, he's kind of washed his hands of it all. Uh, so what do you think is his best film? I know what I think. I'm just kind of curious. Well, I was when we filmed when we did the boxing thing. I was in it, but they cut me out of it. It was a postal. Postal is what I think. I still think postal is funny. I mean, it's so off color and and deranged. I think he's good when he makes crazy ass Gonzo comedies. Yeah, you know, I think at least there he doesn't have to be restrained. He can just kind of go wild, and they're never even that good. But you know, they're okay. Uh, Maybe Rampage is also okay. I don't know. I, I can't speak with authority on many of the later films. I can't either. I kind of dropped off myself. But right? I think you and I both agree Postal is the best yeah. one because it's the funniest one. It has the best joke of him talking to the guy going, oh, my my dad died in a concentration camp and he's got the great <laughs> line. So did mine. He fell out of a guard tower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, just from the opening on, on down, I mean, yeah. like the guy's about to crash into the trade center and then they have an epiphany and they're going to you know what, this is all bullshit. Let's just reroute this and then the people break through and then, you know. Yeah. I mean, an exercise in bad taste, of course, but, um, you know, I, I just thought that was, I, th- I thought definitely that was one of the better films he made for sure. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So do you want to start talking about composing in your own your own films and the um, ones you've directed? Because you've, you've written, directed, edited, composed. You're like the Robert Rodriguez of Toronto. In, in a way, um Except Rod, Robert Rodriguez makes money doing his movies. So <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, we've done several short films, and the most successful thing we've ever done is this fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the way, right? Uh, no, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, my favorite uh, my favorite kind of genre of, of films are... I, I'm a big European horror movie right. fan. So I, I, I keep saying he's my favorite director. I think I think he's probably the most important director in history. But I'm not saying his movies are very good, and that's Jess Franco. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I, Jess Franco has studied with Orson Welles, and, and uh, he was a composer first. He was a jazz man, a trumpet player. Um, but, you know, his love of cinema, and I knew Jess a little bit before he died, but uh, he, he's an obsessive artist. He was an obsessive artist. He made over 200 movies under probably just as many pseudonyms. And, and you can't really judge one Franco movie on its own, I don't think. You have to watch them as a, pieces of a puzzle. He's, a, he's kind of a case study. And so I've been obsessed with Franco for most of my adult life. And uh, when Franco's on, he's on. He's a voyeuristic filmmaker, uh, very personal. And, and it seems to me the less money he had in his career, the more interesting his movies got to me especially when he was working with his wife, Lena Romay. Oh, Lena Romay. I was about to ask you. I was like, I can't remember the vampire, Lena Romay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Female, female vampire. Female was, vampire. Uh, I saw it under the name Eroticill. Charlie Band released it under Wizard Video under the title Eroticill as a kid. Yeah. Uh, 
little bit shorter, not as much, you know, I don't think, I think in the, in the full version of female vampire, she doesn't suck blood. She sucks cum and, and vaginal fluids, uh, in erotic kill. It's, it's blood. But yeah. anyways, I saw it and I was like, it's, it's an anti movie. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't behave like a normal movie. There's no plot. It's just watching Lena Romay stare at windows and, and so that coupled with another filmmaker I love named Jean Roland, and then Werner Herzog was my other favorite uh, director, kind of informed the movies I make. Uh, I've made four, just wrapping my fifth now. Um, I've made them all with other people's money. All of them have been distributed around the world. Um, some people despise them. Some people actually quite admire them and, and love them. There's no one that says, ah, they're okay, which is fine with me. Because uh, they're mine, you know, they're yeah, mine and they were made for very little money. And, and, you know, I think there's a great freedom. And I think when you're working in, in, in the independent, if someone came up with a, I would say if someone backed up the money truck with me to me right now and said, make this movie, I'd, I'd even have to seriously consider that because uh, the joy of working as an independent filmmaker means you do have the freedom to do whatever you want. Because there's very little risk, uh, you know, give us a good poster and a little bit of a half-assed marketing campaign you'll make your paltry bit of money back on, on movies like mine. Um, but I think with my films, whether you like them or it's irrelevant, I think over time, like Franco, what you're going to do is after, long after I'm fucking mummy dust, uh, someone's going to like find my films and then piece them together with things I've written about other films and maybe even like this appearance on this podcast. Right, right, right. And other things and kind of see... The films is a piece of a puzzle of a larger, a larger puzzle, you know, and uh -huh. uh, of many different mediums and, and different forms of expression, but basically saying the same thing. So the movies are essentially my my uh, love letter to Franco and Roland and Herzog done in a very uh, singular way, my way, whatever. And um, yeah. Well, let me you go. we're going to have to talk about Roland because I'm not familiar with him. We won't do it now, but I may message you later after this and you may teach me a little bit about this later on if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, sure. Jean Roland's one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. Yes. yes, I'd like to learn more. Well, let me ask you about independent films since since yeah. you brought the topic up. What's your what's your viewpoint on on independent cinema today? Like I feel like it's not well, such a well, you, it's it, not a it's not it's not what it used to be. David Lynch says it's dead. It's de yeah, exactly. It's all with the cable and streaming. I have many thoughts on this. Um, well, I don't know. We talk about Roger Corman. You look at some of Corman's early, his first movie, uh, Monster from the Ocean Floor, yeah, nineteen fifty four, is is you know by and large a piece of shit. Uh, but there is genuine craft there. He still had to come up with X amount of dollars to film on thirty five millimeter in a tropical location. Um, there with, you know, there, there's still something there that's vital and, and, and appealing and cinematic. Corman still understood cinema. You know, he, he was still trying to make a movie that looked like a, a movie, you know? Right. And, um, I think the problem with today is that everybody loves movies. Uh, and now everybody can make movies because there's the technology, yeah. but I don't think everybody necessarily should. Although I even kind of don't agree with myself in that way, because if you're going to explore being an artist, then you shouldn't listen to anybody's advice. So don't even listen to me. Um, but again, I think it comes down to music, having that sense of rhythm and timing. Uh, there's a lot of people out there making movies right now that that go away from making their movie with their souls crushed because 
everyone wants to be the director, but not everyone can be the director. Everyone right. wants to be that guy or that that force, that creative force, but not everybody's wired that way, you know? And and back in the day, you could still have a career in cinema by taking another job on the set, but now everybody wants to be an auteur. And I think there's a lot of miserable independent filmmakers running around with their iPhones, wondering why shit ain't happening for them right now, you know? And uh, so I, I find it kind of depressing, kind of wonderful that everyone can make a movie. You know, it's great. It's both. But um, did we freeze? No, no, you're yep. fine. You're fine. It's it's both. Yeah. I I totally agree with you. It's it's yeah. It's a it's a double edged sword. Man. Yeah. It really, really is. I've seen some amazing independent movies, and I've seen more than my share of movies that are just astonishingly fucking awful. You know, um, and there's just too many movies now. I mean, this is the problem. It, it, it's just so many. I mean, Jesus Christ, I can't keep track. It's why I stopped collecting comic books as a kid. I couldn't keep track of it all. Yeah, just too many. Um, so there's that. And the other thing is too, I think a lot of independent filmmakers are trying to make movies with low aspirations. They just want their movie to be in a Walmart dump bin I mean, or, or a Netflix queue yeah. or something like that. There, uh, you look at, uh, you mentioned David Lynch uh-huh. before, before Eraserhead, there was no Eraserhead before David Cronenberg shivers. There was no shivers before night of the living dead. There was no night of the living dead. These were filmmakers working with no money and, and the underground breaking the fucking rules. Uh, especially Eraserhead, yeah. uh, breaking rules and inventing new ones. And when you're independent, you have that power and freedom to do it. Why do you want to make another Conjuring movie just so that your movie might end up on a Walmart shelf? You know, to me, it's kind of sad. So it, I don't have one thought about independent cinema today. It's it's there's just there's too many. My synapses are firing like the Fourth of July in my skull. Well, it was like it. it was like last year. I've said this in a previous podcast. My favorite movie from last year was probably a movie that a lot of people don't know about called Dave Made a Maze. Because oh, yeah. I haven't seen that, but everyone always t- tells me that I should check it out. Oh, you should definitely watch it. I mean, just... Well, the only one of us has still got to see it, too, because remember the six-month-old? He has two kids. Well, he has and two it's, kids. It's not, and like you said, it's not on the Walmart shelf. Yeah. And it's not in a dump bin. That's not where I can... And, and to be honest, that's the other side of it <laughs> is we don't have video stores anymore. I used yeah. to discover a lot of films because I'd go into a video rental place and you always had that, quite frankly, old guy that worked there to say, hey, you like this? Try this. Yeah. And I got to see so many movies that nobody saw. Yeah, well, I guess I guess Netflix and other streaming services like that are the new video store. And, uh, you know, I know if you watch one, it'll say, if you watch this, you might like this. So in a way, kind of robotically, it does that. It's not the same thing. Yeah. You know, we're analog guys. We like that human connection. Yeah. We're having discussions. And it's not just done by an algorithm, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. But I mean, I, I think, you know, independent cinema is not dead. Horror cinema is not dead. You just have to really look now. You can't, you know, it's not just what's coming down the pike on Friday nights. You have to really search and sift through the dump bins, which in a way is kind of exciting because that's what I used to do as, as a kid in the video stores. Absolutely. In the exactly. video stores. You never knew what you were going to get. You were judging books by their covers, especially if you're a horror fan. Sometimes you'd end up renting the same goddamn movie five times because some idiot was re-releasing it under a different name. Yes. Uh, so you never knew what you were going to get. You was all trial and error. Right. Uh, and, but the thing is, back then, you had to pay four bucks a rental. Now it's, it's pennies. Uh, but from the filmmaker's standpoint, too, it sucks because, yeah, it's pennies, and they're only making less than pennies on their movies. So I don't even know what the value of a movie is anymore. 
It's it's a it's the wild west. We've almost like dialed. This happens every fifty years. The whole film industry changes because of new technology, and everything kind of starts over again. You know, so I, we're definitely at that point where everything has kind of started over, and no one really knows which direction we're going to go in. But the problem is, though, there was the one video store. I will throw this out. There's fourteen thousand streaming sources. Yeah. And That's you can't true. just have one. So he said, oh, Dave made a maze, blah, 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 blah. Well, I don't have Hulu. It happens to only be on Hulu. I have Amazon yeah. Prime and Netflix. You know what I mean? So I have to go out and get another stream. I can't just go. And Redbox has, what, 25, 50 movies to choose from? That's about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they're only, and they're, for the most part, they're only box office hit movies. They're box the office hits and about five or ten really bad like or, badass spiders yeah or, <laughs> or camel spiders or something like oh, that God. yeah or shark i mean my kids have my kids have such great goddamn taste in movies it's hilarious uh it's it's too funny i uh we we, we ended up one night seeing robo shark it was on tv and we said let's just give it a chance and all of them are like no dad no this is unwatchable so now every shit movie we come across it's the barometer is like is it going to be Robo Shark bad? And we have like we have the, the the safety word when we're watching the movie is if someone yells Robo Shark, we have to turn it off. <clears throat> they have this. We ended up, I ended up showing them their first Nightmare on Elm Street movie on New Year's Eve, Nightmare on Elm Street Four. They never. I mean, these are kids. Like my ten year old, his favorite movie of all time is Night of the Hunter. You know, so <laughs> I show them Nightmare on Elm really? Street Four. But they're watching this movie, and, and my eight year old's like, "Who's the hero in this thing?" I'm like, "Well, there is none." And he's like. Just why are these, who are these characters? Why are we supposed to care about them? I'm like, well, you're kind of not. Because why is Freddy always making jokes? I'm like, I don't know what to say about, you know, this is a bad movie to show you because it's like the worst of the series, you know? But they just, they couldn't deal with the, the robotic nature of those, that kind of a movie, you know? It's, it's too, too funny, man. Too Oddly funny, enough, kids. two weeks ago, we had the production designer of Not Mel Known Street 4 on our show. And oh, I'm so sorry. No, sorry about that if he's watching. No, he, he's, he's a, a good-looking movie. He, he, honest, well, we met him at a con, and yeah. he's become a friend, oddly enough, like people do, right? But uh, it's just funny that you were bringing it up. Well, well he even said, what did he, what was he, he told, told about? the story. He, he said that. Well, there was um, no script. There was no script. But more no or less, they were writing it as they went, and he said they even filmed this scene. They uh, changed who was going to be the main character. Yeah. After they started filming, and he said they had filmed this elaborate thing where they had the house pull away. And he and built it new, all, and they shot it. A new set came mm. in behind her, and also it was how she moved around the world, and it was really artistic. And after they filmed it, somebody came in, and they cut it out of the film, and they set it on his desk, and went, there's your shot. <laughs> we we oh, changed man. who the main actress is. And he was like, I d and you know, he said it was one of those things that, the script was what the script was. Or actually, it wasn't what it wasn't. Yeah, there was no script. Yeah, and, yeah. and he said, but that shot would have, was, you know, even other people that saw it went, oh my God, that shot, that's artistic, that's, and it's gone. And, and, kind well, of, uh, you know, and, you know, as, as far as Rennie Harlan movies go, it's still better than Cutthroat Island. <laughs> oh, you just, are you okay? No. <laughs> we got into it the other day. Cause no, we were talking I don't about... like Cutthroat Island. I made a joke one episode. <laughs> the best Rennie Harlan movie it. is either Die Hard 2 or Long Kiss Goodnight. Done. Oh, cliffhanger. <laughs> cliffhanger. Yeah, okay. yeah. But, but uh, yeah. well, there's a few things we, we, we were, we're running at 50 minutes, and I don't want to take up all your night. I, I, this is a question that we've started asking people who've worked with people. So, specifically you for interviewing, who's the best person you ever, ever interviewed or your best interview? And I yeah. know it's kind of a cliche question. And who was just oh, 
horrible. So many. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, as far as like, you know, I've met, I've been lucky enough to meet all my heroes. Yeah. Uh, most of them, obviously the ones that are alive. Uh, We've met but, most of ours too. Yeah. But the craziest interview of my life, and I'll go to my grave because I can't, it can't be topped. Was Nicolas Cage? There's no, no doubt <laughs> oh, about please it. Please tell me a Nicolas Cage story. He is obsessed <laughs> with Nicolas Cage. Okay, so Cage was making had made Ghost Rider too, and I'm yeah. a huge Cage freak. Vampires Kiss, I think. You yeah. Know, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Wild at Heart. I mean, to me, Cage is my my spirit animal. You know. And, yeah. And you know, just just anyways, we love Nicolas, and I'm so glad he's become a genre unto himself at this point. But he's a huge horror movie freak. Everything he does is horror movies. Horror. He's a Fangoria maniac. Right. So Ghost Rider 2 comes up, and I, I get this um, email from his publicist or his agent, or I don't know. It says, you know, Nick really wants to uh, talk about horror movies with you. I'm like, well, okay, great. And he goes, he wants to know if you're, you you can, uh, you know, cover Ghost Rider 2, even though it's really not horror. I'm like, it's a Nicolas Cage movie where his, he goes on fire. His, he's a fucking skull <laughs> on a motorbike, and he's on fire. And he's got chains right. and shit. Uh, yes, I can. Of course I can cover that movie. And... Uh, so they were trying to think of this interview, and it was really, really difficult. Uh, he said, well, Nick's in the, his house in the Bahamas on his island next weekend. He asked if you can come out there. I'm like, I can. So I got on a plane, and I flew out to the fucking Bahamas, and I had this, like, secret map. I got off the plane. I, I went to the shitty hotel. I slept. I got up. I, I found this map, and I, was supposed, I went to the worst parts of the Bahamas, like the skittiest, skeeziest uh -huh. ends of the shittiest part of the Bahamas. And where everything's caged up, and and I ended up at this dock, and I it said, "Wait for a guy. This guy's gonna show up in a boat." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> Some dude shows up in a boat, and he's like, "Get in my boat!" Right? I'm like, I'm like uh, who, "Why? Who are you?" I go, "Who?" He's like, "You're coming with me to see my boss." I'm like, "Who's your boss?" He's like, "Nicholas Kidd." <laughs> I'm like, "Fuck yeah!" So I get in the I get in the boat. And we travel across, you know, whatever, to Paradise Island. And there's, uh, we dock the boat. And I look up and there's this guy with this scraggly beard. And he's waving to me like, hello, <laughs> right? Like, ahoy, right? I'm like, holy shit, it's Cage. Get off the fucking boat. Climb up to this, like, terrace he has and get up there. And, and he gives you a big hug. And he's like, oh, my God, it's Cage. He looks like a pirate. And we go to his courtyard, and he's got this coffee table laid out with all his horror movies laid out as DVDs everywhere. He's like, I did this in honor of you, in honor of Fangoria. I'm like, awesome. <laughs> I go, what would you do if Entertainment Weekly was coming? He's like, well, they're not invited. Like, okay, great. <laughs> so we sit down there. He's got his, like, people come and bringing us wine, and we're, so we're getting shit-faced, and we're talking about... Uh, Hammer movies because he wanted to remake Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, yeah, which is great. Terrence Fisher's last movie, yeah, yeah. And so we're talking about that movie and and getting into all this great conversation, not about his work, just about films. And he's like, "I have a special surprise for you." I'm like, "Okay." He's like, "Have you ever eaten the the penis of a conch snail?" I'm like, <laughs> "No." So he gets his manservant out there. Actually, if you go look on YouTube, I have this clip. I put it up. He let me film it. His manservant comes out with an axe and this giant fucking sea snail, and he starts hacking away at it. It's like Cannibal Holocaust. He's killing this thing. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, this is like what they do. You eat the snail, and it's like Viagra. And I'm like, well, why am I going to eat it? Anyways, he ends up like pulling this giant dick out of this thing. Oh. And he was trying to make me eat it, and I said, I, I, it's, it's black. I can't eat this thing. It's gross. <laughs> 
And he's like, you're right. It, it is a little gross. He's like, just take it away. Take it away, right? <laughs> the, guy, the manservant ends up clearing the terrace of the dead snail and pieces of it and everything else. And so then we get back into our lunch and having a great old time. Suddenly, uh, you know, we're talking about Herzog and, and growing up as a kid, as a Coppola and all the amazing people that he met, Kinski and... Uh, Suddenly, this giant fucking rooster shows up on the. It just shows up at a no. I'm like, it's huge. It was like uh -huh. a mutant rooster comes walking into the terrace out of nowhere. I'm like, whoa, what's going on now? He's like, oh, oh, do you want to practice some obeya? I'm like, obeya. He goes, do you know what that is? I said, yeah, it's voodoo. He's like, yeah. I'm like, I, I don't know. Do I? He's like, I don't know. Maybe not, maybe not. And he calls his manservant, he goes, just take it away, take it away, take it away. <laughs> so the manservant wrestles the fucking rooster and just drags that bastard away. I'm like, this is, this is fucking insane. It is insane. And so we end up getting shit-faced, eating our faces off, talking about everything. And then I'm doing my cage impersonation for him. And, he's, and it, it was just like the craziest afternoon of my life. And, uh, yeah, so then various things happened at that point. We became really good friends for about five minutes. And uh, he had his – Basil Gogos had painted a picture of him as Ghost Rider. Uh -huh. And he said, we got to put this on the cover of Fangoria. I'm like, original Gogos on the cover of Fangoria? Absolutely. And so he gets his people to go to his L.A. house and photograph his painting, and we get this whole thing done. And he's calling my house every, like – this is about the thing with the kids. My kids would answer the phone. He's like, let me talk to your dad. And uh, so we're doing this whole thing. We work it out. We had the whole cover design with this amazing Go Ghost Ghost Rider cover. And then the publicist got involved. And uh, they said, we can't do this because that's Nick looking like Ghost Rider Part 1. We need Ghost Rider 2. And I'm like, uh, fuck you. Nick and I are doing this. There's nothing to do with you. Go go fuck yourself. Uh -huh. And eventually they – he was right. He was st stood by me the whole time. And then eventually they got to him and we ended up putting just a – still of, of him screaming and Ghost Rider too. And anyways, but we were close enough that I threw a big party for him in New York uh, with him and Idris Elba uh -huh. and uh, the directors of Ghost Rider 2. And we invited the, you know, it was a hundred lucky fans got to come in there and we did a Nicolas Cage impersonation contest judged by him and me. And uh, it was great. And we were best pals until Ghost Rider 2 came out and fucking tanked. Yeah. And then he basically disappeared. If you look at his IMDb and his career, he put his all into Ghost Rider 2. Even it's a piece of shit, doesn't matter. He put everything into that movie. It was his passion project, and he took a huge pay cut, and and uh, he did all the PR tours and put just put his balls on the chopping block, and it fucking tanked. And it, I think it really just crushed his spirit. So if you look at his IMDb, man, I think The Croods is all he did for like a year or so, and he totally withdrew himself. And uh, we've had some dealings since then, but... Nothing will ever, no matter what comes of my relationship with that dude, nothing will ever duplicate that crazy ass 24 hour period I spent with him in the Bahamas, <laughs> wrestling cocks and like eating cocks. And <laughs> oh man, it, it was just like the wildest, wildest time. He's, he's got one coming out soon. I guess it's already Mom out on Dad. demand. Mom and Dad, which is a horror movie he made. With the, where he, yeah, by Brian, Brian Taylor, who directed, co-directed Ghost Rider 2. Uh -huh. yeah. I mean, it's it's that it's that I saw it. It's it's a great Cage performance. Selma Blair is also good in it. It's, it's a black comedy, but extremely violent. And Cage is, again, does his typical, Cage, freak out! It's great. But uh, Brian Taylor, I'm not a huge fan of the director. I don't like the Crank movies. I, I find them just too over-caffeinated. It's, it's Taylor uh, and uh, Neville Dean. Neville. Yeah, yeah. There's no Neville Dean in this yeah. project. But you can see where the Taylor is the driving force of the mania. 
because it's very much simpatico with those movies. Yeah. The one I want to see is the one that's currently the highest reviewed movie, uh, highest rated movie in Sundance, and that's. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, uh, Mandy. Yeah. Right. By uh, what's his face? Um, uh, I, I was I was looking at it this afternoon and I didn't I see the heard. director. I haven't heard. Yeah, it's all. Yeah, it's, it's all. It's the director of Beyond the Black Rainbow, who's the son of. Uh, uh, what's his name? Who directed Leviathan and of Unknown Origin? Oh, 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 uh, uh, Cosmostus. Co Cosmostus. Cos George Pan Cosmost Cosmostus. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 His son, Panos. Panos, his son, right? Right. So uh, this is the new movie from him, and, and critics are tripping over their own testicles to rave about this thing, saying it's the ultimate Cage performance, that finally a, a film is, you know, Cage has always gone into this abstract zone in the most pedestrian movies, but finally we have a movie to support that performance oh, that's great. just as insane as he is. I was so seeing I some of this. I was seeing some of the stills in this, of this movie, and my jaw was dropping. So I'm, I've got to see it. <laughs> I'm so excited to see this movie. Yeah, totally. Well, do we have any more questions? Because we're well, at the hour. Mark. I was going to say, I know we're at the hour mark. But you're—I was reading—you're either working or have finished working on an anthology. You're doing the music for it, and there's some other people involved with that. Uh, yeah. So there's a couple things. I'm finishing my my fifth movie, Space Vampire, uh -huh. and then uh, there's another movie. My my buddy John, the Toronto guy who I've known for my whole life, who made the movie Channel Zero, and he's got an anthology called The Underneath, and I, I'm contributing a segment to that. Oh, that's great. Uh, some, of the, some of the music, sure. And, um, yeah. And then there's another movie I'm making uh, that was written by Barbie Wilde from Hellraiser 2 uh -huh. called uh, Blue Eyes, starring Nivek Ogre from Skinny Puppy, who also starred in my movie Queen of Blood. We're shooting that in the spring, hopefully. Our producer director behind the camera just did this. <laughs> Why, big skinny puppy fan? Oh uh, yeah, she's she's excited. Yeah. Oh man, uh, yeah, Ogre is, uh, man. He, well, he's like the Mick Jagger of of industrial music, and he's yeah. like one of my good friends and uh, an actor that I wish more people would hire him because he's kind of like he's kind of got that cage mania. Yeah. You know, he really someone really needs to give him a, a proper canvas to really roll out because he's so good. You know. Wasn't Space Vampires the name of the novel that Life Force is based on? Yeah, Space Vampires, plural. Vampires, Life Force is yeah, one of my all-time favorite movies ever. Life Force? And, uh, all, all my movies owe something to Life Force. Oh, really? Matilda May. Yeah, oh, Matilda, Matilda May. May walking around just with those big eyes. I always have this character, Irina the Vampire, who's basically like a cross between the, the, the John Roland's Living Dead Girl, uh -huh. Lena Romay, and Matilda May. So I just went the whole distance and figured that, okay, well, the title's still up for grabs. I'll make it a singular, not a plural. <laughs> and it's my space vampire, yeah. All it's right. my riff on Life Force, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I'd love, to, I'd love to do this again sometime because I would like to have, ask you a ton more questions, specifically, who was the worst interviewee? Do you have a quick one about that before yeah. we go? Well, no, there was, but it's, I always forget her name. There's a shitty show called The Hills. And uh, I know what I've heard of it. Aud Audrina Partridge or something is that? Yeah. Anyways, she was in a shitty movie with uh, Bruce Willis's daughter Rumor, who's a lovely girl. I might add, she was amazing. I loved spending time with her. It was called Sorority Row. I think it was a remake of, of the House oh, of yeah, Sorority Row, yeah. wasn't it? Anyways, it was just a terrible piece of shit. And she was in it, and we had like a twenty-minute interview, and we sat down together, and it was like interviewing air. <laughs> it was it was absolutely awful. Within four minutes, I had nothing else to say to her. And I, I pulled the plug on it. I just—it was the most horrible interview I've ever done uh, with the most blank, most uninteresting human being. Now she may be interesting now, but back then she was. There was nothing going on between those <laughs> years, man. That was a horrible interview. <laughs> and on that note, I think we're good. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been great. On. Thank this you. This has Thank been you. great. I will. That, I, that's, I'll, 
I will totally, I'm going to uh, message you about you educating me about that filmmaker. I will sure. send you the Romero link and we'd love to have you back on again sometime. This episode will be up sometime in February. February. We'll let you know and if you could promote it, we'd appreciate that. For sure, man. Thanks very much, guys. All right. Thank, thank you so you much, Chris. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. Bye. Yeah, bye.